Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, and you'll notice that this is an extra long episode. Basically, uh, we spoke in a previous episode, and I'll put in the link, about the Ramon group of uh, student-led Israel education. And we had Javiv Retagur as a guest speaker uh, who explained to the students about Israeli elections and Israeli democracy and his insights into it were so good that we are just releasing the recording as a podcast episode. Uh, it is extra long, but Javiv has a way of uh, taking information and events and anecdotes and weaving them into these explanatory narratives that make things make so much sense that we think it's well worth releasing. Obviously, you can listen as long as you like. The first hour is Javiv's thesis, and then there's a question and answer with students, and you can tune out when you want. But I have to tell you, uh, it is worthwhile listening to the whole thing. So it's there for you to enjoy. Uh, happy Election Day coming up, and uh, we'll hopefully you'll hear from us soon. Happy Passover. Welcome to a conversation on the Israeli election, uh, 48 hours before uh, the Israeli election. Uh, this is a very busy time for me. <clears throat> I haven't uh, slept in the last couple of days and uh, won't be sleeping for about a week. It's going to take a few days before we know who's who's actually won and what the parties look like, if only because a lot of voters are voting under coronavirus restrictions, and so they can't go to to the standard polling booths, I mean, a lot, I mean, more than 10% of the electorate, a huge number, um, possibly as many as 600,000 voters, which Israel is a small country, roughly the population of Austria, that's a very large number of voters. Um, and, uh, and so we're not going to actually know much for about a week, but we're going to, of course, have to talk about it a great deal, even when we don't know much. It's called the uh, journalism. So, um, I want to try and tackle this question of an Israeli election. What is an Israeli election actually about? How does it work? What is actually happening in an Israeli election? It's very different. Now, uh, can you give me a show of hands if you're Americans? Is that about half? Uh, shout out who, where you're from if you're not American. Argentina. Argentina? Where? Canada? Israel doesn't count. Spain. It is count. I mean, it counts, you know, but Spain. Okay. And Canada twice. Thank you, Canada. Um, it's a dive into the Israeli electoral system is a confusing thing it, it, because um, Israel's electoral system is one of the simplest in the world. Um, and Israeli elections aren't about any of the things that elections we think of sort of from the English speaking West um, in Latin America, in much of Europe. They're not about the things that we think elections are about. For example, Israelis do not debate health care in an election. That's just not something they talk about in an election. They don't think health care is something you ask the voter about. Healthcare is something that doctors and economists put together, and we've had major, major healthcare reforms and built a very sophisticated universal healthcare system in Israel. Uh, and we actually 
have a very high uh, uh, life expectancy. We live very long, about three years longer than Americans, even though Americans are much wealthier than us. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with a well-built healthcare system that is left to professionals. And it's something that Israelis just don't think you discuss uh, with voters because voters don't know the first thing about how to build a healthcare system. Um, we don't have a debate in Israel about uh, abortion. We don't have a debate in Israel about uh, the environment. Uh, when the Trump administration left the Paris Climate Accord, uh, <clears throat> Israel's environment minister at the time, a man named Zev Elkin, um, very right-wing, very right-wing on most issues that you would consider right-wing on the Palestinian question, on the West Bank, um, a conservative sort of socially, uh, a religious man. Uh, he said, climate change is real. We're not leaving the Paris Accords. We're going to meet our renewable energy targets by 2050. That's something I'm committed to. Why? Because that's science. We, it, it, we don't debate the environment. There's no discussion between left and right on that issue. Even on issues that once profoundly divided the Israeli electorate, that defined left and right in Israel, that were the defining, div dividing line between the two camps, uh, which is to say the Palestinians, what do we do about this question of Palestinians and security and land and settlement and historic rights and the Palestinians' own need for rights and independence and separation? What, what do we do with that enormous issue that is 15 issues all rolled up into one? And where you came down on that big issue decided whether you're left or right. Until about 20 years ago in the Second Intifada, a wave of, of, of terrorism that came, that really shattered the Israeli left. I don't want to get into the specifics of that event. Uh, it's not relevant for us today. There are many Israeli narratives about what that event was and many Palestinian narratives. But there was a moment at the height of the peace process in the fall of 2000, um, which is before you guys were born, right? No. What, what year were you guys born? 98. So I oh, was... Wow. Yeah, I would, no, um, just because I'm an Israeli. So um, students. 2001, I rest my case. Um, thank you, Yael, you saved my point. Um, uh, in the fall of 2000, the second Jifada begins and the peace process as most Israelis, certainly most Israeli Jews, but also a large number of Israeli Arabs, as most Israelis perceive it, um, the peace process really collapses um, and the, the Palestinian question goes into a kind of um, coma. It's not gone. Everybody understands that we can't, the current situation isn't eternal, isn't sustainable. It's a stopgap situation, according to the far right, the far left, everyone in the middle. But nobody has any good answers anymore because all the past answers, Israelis believe, I'm not saying they're right, I'm just saying they, they believe when you ask them and pollsters ask them, all the old answers about how to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict how to end the occupation, how to end the div this, this dividing thing, this, this, this very uh, painful uh, thing. And all of our children, of course, serve in this army that, that, that deals with this thing. We all have personal stake in it. Of course, the Palestinians have a personal stake in it. How to end this thing is no longer something that Israelis feel they have any good answers to. And so there isn't even a debate on the Palestinians in an Israeli election. So what are Israeli elections about? Why would you support Benjamin Netanyahu and why would you oppose Benjamin Netanyahu? Why would you decide to vote for Yair Lapid and why would you decide that you despise Yair Lapid? Why is there a 
Haredi party, an ultra-Orthodox party that's Sephardi, called Shas, and a completely separate ultra-Orthodox party that's Ashkenazi, called United Torah Judaism, when they have the exact same policies. Why can't they be one party? What, is, what are Israeli politics actually about? What are these divides and these fights? What are they mediating? What is the social tension that they're actually about? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about it very quickly. Uh, and then we'll open it up to a conversation. Um, and I want to try and tell you something. Now, I, I think uh, the people on this call have heard about Israel, know generally about Israel, maybe follow the news from Israel. So I'm going to try and tell you something new, even though you might actually know quite a bit. Uh, wish me luck. In some ways, the Israeli electoral system is one of the simplest in the world. And what do I mean by that? Anybody here voted in an Israeli election? Yeah, other than, three times other than, who? <laughs> in a year. Three times in a year. Three times in a year. Ophir, and what do you vote for? Yamina. You vote um, for Yamina. Bennett. Whatever, I meant, whatever I meant generally. Right, Bennett himself yeah. has a different I'm just going names, with but, Bennett every time, yeah. But I meant even more generally. What is it you actually get to vote for? Because oh. when an American, when an American um, walks into a voting booth, they have something called a ballot. Any American yeah. here ever voted in America? That ballot, how many names are on the ballot? How many positions are on the ballot? How many initiatives and propositions are on the ballot? How many different legislatures, not legislators, not candidates, actual different bodies of legislation are on the ballot? Anybody want to throw out a number? Let's just say lots, right? You might vote for county, you might vote for state, state legislature, state governor. It depends on the year. It depends on the cycle. You might vote for the House representative. Well, you're definitely going to vote for the House. You might vote for your senator that year. You might vote for a president that year. It's just this long, long list of candidates. And when an Israeli walks into the voting booth, what do you vote for, Ophir? You have exactly... Just a party. You have, like, question. a note with just who, who do you want to be, like... I want to say prime minister, but it's not true because you have like the small uh, party that you minister, vote. Right. Yeah, you just vote for the person you, you relate more. Minister, you don't just, even vote for a member of Knesset. Who do you vote for? You vote for a, a slate. A, a party, list, yeah. A party list. That's what you vote for in Israel. And that's the only thing you vote for. There is one question you are asked in an Israeli general election, and that is which list of, of names running yeah. for the Knesset do you support? The entire yeah. country is a single constituency. Argentina. Who's Argentina? In Argentina, do you have local representation? Do you have uh, 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 legislators that represent an area like you do in the United States and in England and in France? And yeah, it's Germany? basically the American system. We it's extremely like rare that they're right. And now Italy is a combination is Israel is pretty close to what Italy has, but Italy still has local representation. It's not so normal for countries to have no local representation of any kind and for there to be just one question on the ballot. And the question is, which party do you want to vote for? And the entire country is a single constituency. We have a single house of, of legislation. We have a single legislature. Um, we're roughly the population of Austria, I said. We're smaller than Belgium. Those are both countries with two legislatures. We have one of the fewest, uh, we have one of the smallest legislatures in the world in terms of how many people per capita are represented 
by each, each member of our parliament. We have almost no checks and balances. Now, what do I mean by that? People from parliamentary systems will know what I mean. Uh, our prime minister, by law, has to be a member of the parliament and has to have a majority in the parliament. It's extremely rare and only for very short periods that a government existed without having a majority support of the parliament because it needed the parliament to pass its budget to survive a no confidence vote. So we have a system where the voter doesn't get to actually pick the actual members of Knesset. You pick a list. Now, who appoints the members of Knesset on that list? Yes, uh, it depends on the country. Yeah, it depends. Who decides who's on the Yeshatid list? Yeshatid is going to be 15, 20% of parliament, probably. Who decided who's on the list? Yair Lapid. Yair Lapid, the party leader. Who decided who's on the list of, of Israel Beitenu, of Shas, of United Torah Judaism? In fact, yeah, the, head uh, of the, the Labour Party is now polling at about five seats. Those will be the only five members of Knesset who actually got selected in a primary ahead of this election. Likud has primaries, but Likud is carrying over its list from the past because the elections are so close together now, it doesn't see a point in having a primary between each election. And even in Likud, the influence of Netanyahu over the shaping of the list in the primary election is enormous, is tremendous. Netanyahu controls more than half the list in real terms. So the vast majority of members of Knesset aren't selected by the people who just vote for a list, really for the leader of the list. You vote for Yair Lapid, you vote for Bennett, you vote for Smotrich, you vote for Netanyahu, you vote for Gantz, you vote for Michael, you vote for the leader. That's how people talk about the list, the leader of the list. And the leader appoints the rest of the MKs. Now, what does that mean? That means that number 12 in Yeshatid, I'm not picking on Yeshatid, Uh, because I don't like them. They're wonderful people. Uh, this is true of Likud. This is true of just about every party in, in the Knesset, certainly of the Haredi parties. Number 12 in Yeshatid, who, I don't even know who that is. Who do they owe their allegiance to to make sure they get to keep their seat? To the voter? Not to the voter. The voter didn't pick them, but to the party leader. So we have a system that's incredibly simple, elects a single house of legislation, which produces a government, which depends on that House of Legislation, and has a majority almost by definition in that legislature, which means that there's no real effective checks and balances. If you learned uh, in class in high school or in political science 101 in college that you need a system of checks and balances, Israel doesn't have checks and balances in the classic sense. The government and the Knesset don't check each other well. The voter doesn't actually select the member of Knesset who then has to answer to the voter and really thinks that the voter decides, you know, their fate personally. There's less of a personal stake of a personal connection between the member of Knesset and the voter than there is, for example, in the United States or in Argentina or in France or certainly in Britain, certainly in Canada. Welcome to one of the simplest electoral systems in the world. Literally, the voters just sort of It's like a poll. Which party list do you most identify with? Car copy paste that poll, which happens in the voting booth, to the parliament. We then have a bunch of parties in the parliament, roughly 11. Sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 13, roughly 11. And then after election day, the real work begins. Now, no party in Israel's history has ever had a majority 
in Israel's parliament, not even in the old days of David Ben-Gurion and, and his absolute control over the state and his Mapai party that founded the state, established so many of its vital institutions, really basically from the army to the healthcare system to just about everything else, to most of the industries in the early years of the state. This political party really established a country. And even he couldn't get more than, you know, he, even he couldn't get 61 seats out of 120 in an election. And he had to find coalition partners uh, after the first election in 1949. There's never been a party with a majority of the public. There have always been uh, governing coalitions. I'll say more than that. One, one more quick thing, and then we'll move on from this whole sort of structural point. Um, we don't have, we're not good at constitutions. Now, we don't have a constitution, really. We have this quasi-constitutional thing called basic laws, which lay out some of the rules for how the judiciary functions and how the Knesset functions and how the government functions and the fact that elections must happen every certain amount of time. We have those rules written into basic laws. Very few of the basic laws have the um, resiliency of, of a constitution. What do I mean by resiliency? Uh, in the United States, um, no bill can pass into law unless the House and Senate both pass the identical text, which means that each house actually has a, a veto over the other house, right? And then it goes to the president and the president can veto. Now, if the president vetoes, it comes back to the House and the Senate and then they have to pass it in a much higher percentage. And then you can, you can take it to the Supreme Court and, and sue over the question of constitutionality. So you have all these checks and balances. What happens, okay, if the Supreme Court then decides this law is unconstitutional, but everybody wants it, everybody wants it, but it's unconstitutional. What do you do in the United States? You change the constitution. How do you change the constitution? Not in the House, not in the Senate, Certainly not the president and definitely not the Supreme Court. You go back and have to win, I think it's three quarters of all state legislatures have to pass a constitutional amendment, a completely different, much, much more local sort of body of American electoral, of the American electoral system produces the, 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 the rules of the game that all the rest have to play. What do you do? Israel in 1992 passed a law called uh, the Basic Law, Human Dignity and Liberty. It's basically our Bill of Rights. It contains a lot of rights. By the way, not that many rights, very few rights. You have a right to dignity. You have the right to free movement. You have the right to privacy. That's about it. You have the right to life. Uh, you have the right to property. I think I named them all. You don't have in Israeli law a lot, a lot of rights that you have in other constitutions. We but not in law. We have it as a social reality for complicated reasons that aren't relevant for us today. But how, my point is that basic law, that constitutional basic law, human dignity and liberty, passed in the Knesset with more than half of the members of Knesset not even in the room. They didn't even vote. It passed something like 30-15. I mean, you can look at the actual number on Wikipedia. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was at that, at that, that sort of level, that, that magnitude. It passed with very, very few votes. Most members of Knesset didn't know they were voting on the great Bill of Rights of Israeli law. It passed in 1992, very, very late. Most of the Knesset didn't know what it was voting on. 
Uh, and do you know what you need to do to overturn it? In other words, in Israeli law right now, there's a right to privacy in the basic law, human dignity and liberty. If I don't like that right to privacy, because I think that the government should be able to track what everybody is doing on the internet, and I want to overturn the Israeli right to privacy, what do I have to do? I literally have to get three members of Knesset into the plenum, have two of them vote to overturn it over the course of three votes, and there has to be a little bit of a committee process in there, but that's it, and it's gone. We don't have a constitution in the sense that it, doesn't, it isn't protected by the system itself, by requiring a very large majority to change, by requiring a separate body of the electorate or a referendum or something like that. We have a very, very I, I, I don't know if this is exciting for you guys, but this is exciting for me because it's super weird. It is very strange that we have this electoral system that is so simple. We have this constitution that isn't the constitution in the sense that most countries think of constitutions as something that it's very hard to change and are also the rules that everybody has to abide by this very bare bones thing. And yet we have this robust, successful democracy. We have elections that are real and free and fair and open. We have freedoms of speech and assembly. We have a freedom of the press. We have a free press. We have a very loud and very obnoxious and, 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 and you cannot shut up Israeli journalists as, as uh, Mike and Benji are discovering right now when they're looking for the mute buttons. Um, we have a free press in Israel. Why? How do we have, if you went to high school uh, civics classes, if you learned in high school about how democracies form, then they tell you that democracies need checks and balances. They tell you democracies need constitutions. They tell you democracies need all these things that Israeli democracy doesn't appear to have or to be very good at. And yet we have this very strong democracy. And I want to suggest that the reason we have a very strong democracy is because uh, of what happens the day after an Israeli election. This is the fundamental institution of our democracy. It's the most important one. It's the only real checks and balances we have in our system that mean anything. And it has sustained this very strange democracy through many crises and helped us flourish and grow and become ever freer and more liberal over the decades, despite not having a bill of rights in any meaningful sense or a constitution or two houses of parliament that can check each other or any meaningful separation of powers between parliament and executive. And the institution I'm talking about that is the heart and beating soul of our, beating heart and soul of our democracy, you should not have a beating soul, I'm pretty sure. The institution that I'm talking about is the coalition negotiating table. There's a reason in Israel that we only choose one thing in the ballot box, and that thing is a list of names that we don't control. We don't actually put those names on that list. But we vote for them, and we, and we, and we, and we support one list or another list. How do we make that decision? What is that decision? What am I doing when I pick that list? And what happens the day after the election that's the fundamental institution of our democracy? Thank you so much for asking, I'll tell you. Israeli society looks much, much more like Arab societies than it does like Western societies. It is profoundly divided into tribes, into many tribes, 
and to many kinds of tribes. We are divided religiously. And when I say divided religiously, I don't mean we have religious diversity. Like in the United States, you've got Jews and Christians and Sikhs and 14 other kinds of religious groups. What I mean is that we have ultra-Orthodox in Israel and secular Israelis and what they call themselves religious Zionists or just uh, religious Israelis who are basically what in the United States is called Orthodox. And those three groups, as an example of tribes, there are many, many other groups. Those three groups, as an example of tribes, have their own school systems. If you are ultra-Orthodox, your kid goes to an ultra-Orthodox school, has an ultra-Orthodox curriculum, which is different from the curriculum my kids learn in their schools. And if you're in an Orthodox school, that's also its own system with its own entire curriculum and establishment and different section in our government that handles that particular school, that particular system of schools. And then the secular schools have their own system and the Arab schools have their own system. We have different school systems where the, the kids, the parents choose which one is, represents them and the kids grow up socializing in those separate societies. We have profoundly separated tribes, and that's among the Jews. We used to have a profound separation of Ashkenazi and Mizrahi. It's, you know, the Jews in the Muslim world, uh, the Mizrahi Jews, Sephardi Jews, Sephardi and Mizrahi aren't exactly synonyms. Yemenite Jews, for example, are Mizrahi, but not Sephardi, but they're basically synonyms for the vast majority of Mizrahi Jews. They're, they're also Sephardi. And then we have on the other side, European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. And those two identities matter less than they used to for one simple reason. They're, they're all intermarried. I, I, um, I, they, uh, who's Israeli on this call? I am, but I'm well, not. Gia, what, what are you? Um, Sephardi, Mizrahi, whatever. What? Like so, Moroccan and Tunisian. Moroccan and Tunisian is pretty close, but not identical. Other Israelis, Yael Belkovic. What are you? Um, Ashkenazi. Completely? Uh, yeah, both my parents are from Russia. Uh, you ruined it for me. Usually I cannot. Are there more Israelis here? Usually I cannot. I cannot. Um, like, I'll, I'll talk about this sort of ethnic divides of Jews in the elections. I'll talk about that. Um, to a group in a restaurant in Jerusalem. This is before the coronavirus, and uh, and they would say, "What do you What do you mean Ashkenazi Mizrahi?" And they're mixed, and they and I would just literally turn to whoever the waiter happens to be, and I would ask the gentleman, "What are you?" And unfailingly, he's a third Romanian and a quarter Yemenite. Every time, not very good at math usually. I'm I'm not. I don't remember what he was, but um, every time. Israelis are all intermarried. What's really interesting... Yeah, most of my friends are mixed. Yeah, it's very strange to not be mixed. No offense, but you should look into that. You, you, uh, you can't now marry a Moroccan. I, I'm sorry. There's rules. Um, what's really interesting is once Israelis have, have that intermarriage, that, those many different identities, guys, Yemenite Jewish culture is a radically different civilization than German Jewish culture. Even though they're both Jews and they married each other, those are radically different sources of culture and identity and ways of thinking and feeling. And what's really interesting is Israelis will pick one just to belong to a tribe. 
I have a friend whose last name is Deutsch, which of course is the German word for German. She has a German father, and for her mother's birthday, she took the sisters all got together and took mom to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, to pray for blessings for her birthday because her mother is a Mizrahi, very sort of traditionally minded, slightly superstitious even, uh, woman. Now, this person is an extremely talented, extremely modern, uh, you know, uh, there's, 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 she chooses to be Mizrahi, even though she's half German, living very much in a Yeke world, even living in Tel Aviv. There, there are, there's a divide in Israeli society between people who think that they are Mizrahi and people who think that they are Ashkenazi, and it survives even if they're only one quarter of each, they still take sides. Now, why is this important for us today? Because Benjamin Netanyahu wins by a landslide among the Mizrahi. And Yair Lapid wins by a massive landslide, bigger than Netanyahu's landslide, among Ashkenazim. You have a hard time finding many Mizrahim voting for Lapid, and there are Ashkenazim voting for Netanyahu, but they're not the majority, and they're not even a, they're not even a large plurality. They're, 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 they're a minority. The divides matter. Divides that don't have any physical meaning anymore. We're genetically all mixed up, but culturally they still matter. There's a reason Shas can only represent the Sephardi Mizrahim and United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi Mizrahim. That matters, even though they're both together fighting against the secularists. They still can't unite. Our system is built and was built from the very start to represent those tribes. When the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, um, the United States government uh, asked a very talented and brilliant scholar and law professor from the United States uh, to write a constitution for Iraq. And the constitution uh, didn't work all that well. An American sort of thinking of what an Iraqi constitution would look like. One of the things Americans when they come to the Middle East don't grasp is the tribes, is how important to Iraqis, how Iraq immediately fell apart according to very, very clear lines of Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. The Syrian civil war of the last 11 years is a war about who is Sunni, who is Alawite, who is Druze. That's what decides whether you're pro or anti-Assad, not your you know, ideology as your political thought. Lebanon is divided by law and also in social reality between the Maronite Christians, the Druze, the Shiites, the Sunnis. They literally have representation written into law in, 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 in parliament. Israeli society, the Jews and the Arabs are divided along these cultural and religious divides. And our system is meant, is meant to allow those tribal identities that are very, very powerful to be represented in parliament. And that's why we vote for lists. Um, if Ophir votes for Naftali Bennett, I know a lot about Ophir. Right? Yael, do you want to tell us who you vote for? Um, I'm Canadian. Oh, I'm sorry. Why are you named Yael? You have to fix that. That's confusing the speaker. Uh, I was born in Israel, but I'm in Canada now. I see. Um, <laughs> any other Israelis who vote in Israel? Me? Do I count? Benjamin Mike. 
Yeah, but you know, you're a little. Don't t- no offense. You're a little. You're American in how you think about these things. We're going to ruin I, all of Khabib's demographics. I, I, see, this is not a good group. Usually, if everything not, fits, not really. I think I pegged into your stereotype pretty easily. American Ashkenazi. Yeah, you're Lapid. Yeah, like eight times I voted for him since I moved here, and he's only been around politics for, you know, for six elections. elections. So, yeah, I got six elections. So, so there's a little times. fraud going on here. No, this will be my sixth time, I guess, right? I see. Um, yeah, but I'm, uh, I'm yeah. Not, I'm yeah. On top of a hill in the West Bank, and I'm probably going to be voting for Labor. Okay, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate Appreciate the. Uh, Ma? <laughs> I'll explain later. No, no, no. I forgot to explain later. Why is Ophir surprised? Because he's from Gushetian and he is... Because this um, is a gentleman who is not aware of the requirements of his tribe. How dare you? Now, every settlement has three merits voters. It's not that these people don't exist who are a little bit outliers in the political scheme that I'm sort of describing to you. But fundamentally, people vote their tribes. Bennett voters are Likud voters, but much more Ashkenazi. I'm the speaker. You have to deal with it. Um, oh, yeah, 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 right. I'm not Ashkenazi, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, I'm right. You personally are. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm keep thinking, tri- so that makes sense. Yeah. The tribes really matter. They matter profoundly. They matter for what people think the priorities should be of the government. They matter for when, when someone votes Shas, they're not voting for policies that Shas is going to advance by and large around the margins. There are people who have very specific views on socialist economics or capitalist economics, but the vast majority of Shas voters are voting for someone who represents us, the tribe, this group, they'll look after us. Now, what happens the day after election day? And with this, I'm gonna finish. What actually happens the day after election day? I'll tell you a dark secret. Don't tell anybody. It'll ruin all media coverage of Israeli elections. The dark secret is you don't win an election in Israel on election day. And it's not just about vote count. The vote count would take a week because of the virus. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't win an election with a vote count. Election day only tells us how much support each tribe has given to those lists, those party slates that are asking those tribes to allow them to represent them. Yair Lapid got 20 seats. Benjamin Netanyahu got 30. If he's lucky, 32. If he's unlucky, 27. How much did my tribe, how much power did they give me? How many of them came together for me? How many of them went out to vote? About a third of the Israeli electorate doesn't vote. That's what election day decides. And then the tribes get to the negotiating table and they sit down at that table. And then something fascinating happens. All the little minorities, all the little tribes, all defend each other. And all the big tribes fight to dominate. And then as soon as the one is dominant over the other among the big tribes, they turn around to the little tribes and beg them to join them so that they have a coalition. Yair Lapid is a secularist. If the ultra-Orthodox will go with him, he will give them his left arm. Because that's his only way of forming a coalition. Benjamin Netanyahu, when he travels to New York as prime minister, goes quietly at the end of his scheduled day to the New York restaurants where he can eat shrimp. 
Because in the official residence where he has lived for 12 years, all food must be kosher. And the man doesn't get shrimp. Think about what that means for this man, this poor, poor Jew trapped in Jew government hell. But in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox are his closest allies and most loyal allies, and they're not his most loyal allies because they love him personally, or they think his religiosity is their religiosity. They're his allies because they have an understanding that he lets them have their policy priorities, and in return, they give him complete support when he goes off to the United Arab Emirates, goes to fight the Iranians, does his economic uh, you know, policies or whatever he wants to do. After the, ele the elections tell us how big and how strong each tribe is. After the elections, all the tribes meet and start to work out who controls what in government. Benjamin Netanyahu cannot do whatever he wants. He cannot, for example, it, start taking away the rights of Israel's Arabs. I'll give you an example of an attempt in recent years, not to take away rights necessarily, but I think to take away rights, but you could argue that it's a reasonable demand. Likud has tried multiple times to pass a law called the Muezzin law. The Muezzin is the call to prayer, the very loud loudspeaker call to prayer um, for Muslim communities in Muslim towns uh, that tells Muslims that it's time, one of the five out times of the day for prayer. This is very noisy if you live near a Muslim community in the Middle East. They don't generally have these in the United States, but they do have them in the Middle East. Now, the first call to prayer in the, in the pious Muslims uh, day is at like 4.45 a.m. It's not reasonable. I don't say that as a theological point. I say that as a, someone who sleeps in in the morning because he works late at night. It's not reasonable. And Likud has proposed multiple times a law called the Muezzin law, the Muezzin bill, which would either lower the volume drastically or actually forbid the Muezzin's call in Israel, which is an enormous change of centuries of status quo. And some Likud MKs who support the bill have described the bill in very racist ways. Arguably, there's a real point about how much noise should be made at 4.30 in the morning. But also some of the people advancing it happen to be racists. That bill has never passed in the Knesset and has never even advanced to a first reading, the first of three votes it needs to pass into law. And the reason it never advances is that it is killed along the way. Who kills every single time it comes up in every Knesset, every time the Israeli Jewish right proposes this bill, who kills it? Ten points to the one who guesses right. I want to say the Haredim, because exactly. they're a Manite. Yeah, makes sense. Why would the ultra-Orthodox, who caucus with the far right of Israel, who caucus with Netanyahu, but also caucus with the Ben-Gvir Kahanists, very... why would the most conservative of conservative Jews, I don't mean capital C like in America, I mean conservative like in, they're very, very conservative, why would they defend the Arabs all the time, constantly, openly, publicly? The head of the editorial Judaism list, Moshe Gaffney, yeah. says openly, I will not let the Muezzin law pass. Don't try. You right-wingers, do do? why do you hate Arabs so much? Grow up. I'm quoting him. That's how he talks. Why do the ultra-Orthodox defend the Arabs? 
Because they want the same simple. right. Yeah. Because for very, it's, it's a very simple reason. It's exactly that. Because they say to themselves, right now, the right is in power. The sort of traditionalist right is in power. And they are very comfortable oppressing Arabs. But next year, the secular left might be in power. They're not going to pass Muezzin laws. Who are they going to pass laws about? Us. In Israeli ultra-Orthodox towns, there's a Shabbat siren. 20 minutes before Shabbat, the siren sounds to let you all know that Shabbat is coming. Uh Uh-oh, don't be caught with lights on that you want to turn off in 20 minutes. What will the neighbors think? The secularists will want to shut down our Shabbat sirens. I defend the Arabs, the Arabs will defend me. It works. It's it's a hundred examples like that. It is how the Israeli system works. We barely have rights written into our constitution. We barely have a constitution. We barely have separation of powers. You'd be hard pressed to find actual separation of powers. Our Supreme Court is the most powerful court in the free world because there's literally nothing else to stop any of the other branches of government. There's a big debate in Israel. The right says it's too powerful. The left says there's nothing else. Both of them are right. We don't have a democracy rooted in any of the things that your political science departments, that you're going to, when you, when you go to college or if you've been in college and you study political science, any of the things that they told you create democracy or are necessary for democracy, we don't have any of them. What we have is Middle Eastern tribes. And those Middle Eastern tribes, because they have really two basic agreements between them, that they don't kill each other, which is very important. You can't have a democracy if one side can murder the other. The great traumatic events of Israeli history are when, are when Jews killed other Jews for politics. Everybody in Israel knows about the Altalena. Look it up. It's a ship that left-wing Jews blew up because it was carrying guns to right-wing Jewish militias in 1948. The Rabin assassination in 1995. What's traumatic for Israelis about the Rabin assassination isn't that a prime minister was assassinated. If a Palestinian terrorist had pulled off that assassination, we would think to ourselves, well done, very successful terrorist. We should hunt them down. But there's no trauma there. What's traumatic about the Rabin assassination was that a Jew killed him over politics. So if you, if you, there's this um, taboo of Jewish violence. Those are the traumatic moments that kids in high school in Israel learn. They learn more about the Rabin assassination in the Altalena than they do about the Yom Kippur War. The, the, the most dangerous war Israel fought since the founding of the state, since the 48 war. Those are moments of real pivotal identity building trauma for Israelis. So if you, ha- if you have this taboo against killing each other and you have the separation of tribes that bring each other in at the coalition negotiating table, you have a democracy. Welcome to Israel. We have an election in two days. We have many, many tribes running in this election we have seen a campaign that reflected that fact. Um, the secularist Russian party led by Avigdor Lieberman doesn't like the ultra-Orthodox and actually has run a campaign against the ultra-Orthodox. And the ultra-Orthodox have quietly thanked him and launched their own campaign against him. And the two campaigns have worked in tandem, creating you know, unbelievable, shocking you know, bigoted statements about each other so that the other one would have something to create a bigoted statements about the other and everybody could maintain this, this enormous, you know, cacophony and noise 
to make sure to pull all the voters in and to make sure that everybody feels very threatened by the other tribes so that everybody comes out to vote so that they both grow at the ballot box. They don't actually hate each other. And once they're in the Knesset, the head of Shas and the head of Israel Beitenu work very, very well together, write legislation together, and are even good friends who sometimes, when they don't think the journalists are looking, eat lunch together. But in the campaign, they tell all of their voters that the other side is about to kill them all and is trying to destroy their way of life. I mean that literally. I mean, the ultra-Orthodox have ads now in ultra-Orthodox newspapers saying, if we don't come out to vote, Avigdor Lieberman will destroy us, using those term, th- that terminology. And Avigdor Lieberman has ads now saying that if secular Russian speakers, but all secular people don't come out to vote, then Gafni of United Torah Judaism is going to turn Israel into Iran. That's an exact ad from Avigdor Lieberman. And then in the Knesset, they're friends. Welcome to Israel, a weirdest democracy in the world, a democracy based on the tension between tribes, the centrifugal force of tribes sort of pushing us apart, and the kind of strange solidarity, Jewish history of refugee ship and such, pulling us together, that strange tension on which we have built a democracy without a liberal Uh, history without uh, the experience of democracy beforehand, without checks and balances, without a constitution, without a bill of rights, without anything. And this weird democracy based on none of the things that democracies are supposed to be based on has survived economic collapses, existential wars, every kind of crisis you can imagine, and flourished. If, um, If the Middle East becomes democratic, Someday, if the Arab Middle East becomes democratic, it's, those democracies will look like our democracy, not like the United States or France. And those democracies will uh, sound loud and obnoxious and tribal like our democracy. So uh, welcome to Israel, a much more exotic place than you expected. And I'm done talking. Well, thank you, Aviv. Not um, record timing. That was really good. I know. It was about 45 minutes. You had a minutes. bet going if I could do it in half an hour. No, no, no. I, the bet really meant 45. We said half an hour to get to 45. It's that friend that you invite for dinner. You invite one friend at 7, but you invite everyone else at 7.30. So that's kind of the metaphor here. You'd be I'm the 7 friend. Seven. I understand. Yeah, exactly. But um, excellent. All right. Let's open the floor for questions. Uh, I'm going to change back to gallery view mode. Um, all right. Who has a question? Tomas, please. Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for being here. Uh, it's really an honor and really good to hear from you. Um, super interesting, what, everything that you told us. Uh, I wanted to ask specifically about two things. First of all, about why do you think if Israel is based on a tribal, um, how do you call it, a tribal model, is it that people sometimes change their votes like in a way that changes the whole election, like drastically, first of all, and specifically, I wanted to ask you about the phenomenon of Cajol Laban, of the Boma White Party from uh, Benny Gantz, and how could that become a reality if everything's so tribal? Like, where did he get his voters from? How did that work? Where did people suddenly vote for a person like that much so that he got like 33 seats in an election? And I'm like, well, he collapsed, but... How did that happen? How do people change their votes? Yeah, it's, uh, so first of all, great questions. Um, I'll say two things. One, 
um, the last two years demonstrate just how profoundly tribal it really is. Because think about um, April 2019, the April 2019 election. Benjamin Netanyahu, we, we don't know that there's, we're about to head into two years of sort of ridiculous deadlock, right? April 2019 is an election. The last government lasted three and a half years, a respectable amount of time for an Israeli government, more than most. And, um, and now we have an election. Normal, easy peasy. And Benjamin Netanyahu theoretically has a majority. There's a lot of right-wing parties and a lot of right-wing seats. But then it turns out that Avigdor Lieberman is unwilling to sit in the coalition in April 2019, and the coalition talks through May, uh, with the ultra-Orthodox. Now, really, Avigdor Lieberman is getting revenge on Netanyahu for things that happened to the previous government, which are not relevant to us today. But his reasoning, his excuse that his voters want to hear is that he won't sit with the ultra-Orthodox. Russian-speaking Israelis feel tortured and tormented by the ultra-Orthodox when they come to the rabbinate and are told they aren't Jewish enough. On endless questions of religion and state, the Russians really feel it very viscerally. And Lieberman says, we have to have a secularist agenda. We have to liberate my voters from the oppression of, of, of the ultra-Orthodox who are represented by, by those parties. We can't both sit in a coalition and just pretend like there's no problem. My voters are suffering. Netanyahu can't square the circle. And on May 30, the last day for Netanyahu to negotiate a coalition after the April 9 election, about seven weeks, on May 30, it turns out Netanyahu doesn't have a majority. And then he goes to the Knesset and he has two choices. Either the Knesset dissolves after a single month of existence, the 21st Knesset, or... Uh, Benny Gantz gets a chance to be prime minister. Now, Netanyahu had 59, 58 seats without Lieberman. Gantz might not have had 61, but he might have. He would have been hard to do without the Arabs. What? I thought it was 60 because he had Mikud, the Haredim, the Smotrich uh, party, United Right Wingers, and then he had Kulanu, which got to 60. I think Lieberman would have got him to 65. I don't think so. Kulana folded in in September. They literally, the results. They had four, literally, they had okay, four so seats. look up the results. I mean, the results are literally on Wikipedia. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Election in English with the number of seats and the number of votes per party. So don't, you know, um, don't work hard on this. But um, I, I think he never got more than 58. That's what I, I remember, but I might be remembering a particular election and not all three. Anyway, as far as I remember, 58, possibly he had 60. He didn't have 61. It wasn't at all clear that Gantz had 61. But Netanyahu wanted to go to elections quickly to not give Gantz the opportunity and to do a redo. Lieberman had just cost the right wing a coalition. Netanyahu thought that Lieberman would suffer terribly and collapse from denying the right its rightful victory because Lieberman's voters are right wing voters. Lieberman has very right wing policies. And so Netanyahu goes to an election. There's just one problem. Netanyahu doesn't have enough votes in the Knesset to dissolve the Knesset. You need a majority of the Knesset to dissolve the Knesset. He doesn't have a majority of the Knesset. He has one group that's willing to join him, to cross the aisle and join him and dissolve the Knesset. And that one group is the Arab parties, because the Arab parties didn't do so well in April. And they think that if they run in September, they'll do better. So Netanyahu unites with the Arab parties to call a new election. By the way, the first time in the history of Israel that an election didn't end in a coalition... What do those numbers mean? What's the final number? 60. 60. So it was 60. Netanyahu gets the Arabs on board. They vote to go to an election. And we have another election in September, the very first time in the history of Israel that an election doesn't end in a government. And what happens to Avigdor Lieberman? He goes from five seats to eight seats. 
Avigdor Lieberman, the right winger, denies Netanyahu coalition, sends the whole country tumbling to a whole new redo election that has never happened before. And Avigdor Lieberman grows from five seats to eight seats. His voters appreciate that he did that and reward him for it. What does Netanyahu have in his coalition without Lieberman after that election in September? Is that 58 seats? Give or take a seat, it's 58 seats. And that is a terrible election for Likud. Likud drops a whole bunch of seats. I think five seats, something like that. So Netanyahu does his very best to try and make sure that Gantz doesn't have a coalition and then he doesn't have a coalition. And then we go to a new election in March of 2020. And what does Netanyahu have in March of 2020? About 58 seats. Lieberman grows, Lieberman shrinks. The Arabs add five seats. The Arabs drop five seats because they divided into two parties. And the actual camps, the size of the total camps, not between parties, total camps, stays the same. And then in March of 2020, Benny Gantz sees the coronavirus coming and sees uh, this, we have polls that there's tremendous support on the right, on the left for national unity government to end this on again, off again election. And Benny Gantz decides to break up blue and white with its 33 seats at the time, if I'm not mistaken, and go with Netanyahu to a unity government. Uh, and a thing that, that the Yair Lapid voters within the blue and white coalition thought was a catastrophic mistake. And a thing that uh, the Benny Gantz supporters, about 15 seats worth at the beginning, thought was a fantastic thing because they're gonna have a unity government and end all this craziness. And we are now polling after a year of what Israelis generally agree, including Netanyahu supporters and including Gantz supporters, was a disastrous unity government. And Netanyahu's coalition is polling now at what? There is no more blue and white. Blue and white, the 35-seat blue and white is gone. There's now a five-seat Gantz, a 20-seat Lapid, and a whole bunch of other small parties that nobody quite knows whether they're going to pass or not. And how many seats does Netanyahu have supporting him guaranteed? In his best polls, 61. In his worst polls, 58. Which is to say, even when blue and white shattered and the entire party's mechanism looks different, the camps haven't changed in size. In other words, the parties represent tribes. They represent real social groups that vote together, even when they vote for a different party. They're not super loyal to party, but there's no question that every party has to find its tribe or, or it, can't, it has nothing to run on. A party that runs on ideas like uh, Yaron Zalicha's uh, new economic party, which is running right now in the election, on certain economic ideas and putting forward an economic platform. He's a professor, uh, economic professor. He used to be the accountant general of the state of Israel. And he thinks that Prime Minister Netanyahu has handled the economy very poorly and governments before him have handled it very poorly. And he's running on a pure economic agenda. He's a very well-known guy and I think a very respected guy and he's getting about 1% of the vote in polls. So um, the tribe matters, even with the name of the friend. A couple of tribes united into something called blue and white. They went with it. Then those tribes fell apart. And now those apart are worth exactly the same thing in polls as they were worth together. So the social reality remains very, very tribal. I'll stop there. Thank you. Even though Benji knows I could say more. Blue and I'll, we'll get to Iwan, but I'm just, and then Alyssa, but I just putting it all in my head. Essentially, blue and white divided more or less into Gantz, Lapid, and Gidon Sar. And Bennett. 
and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit of labor yeah because now- Bennett is without Smotrich so it's more liberal than it used to be so right and all of Guns's uh, addition of about a seat in the last month probably came from labor and labor seat came from the Israelis which were pulling at nine three months ago and now we're pulling at zero um, again the, the people are switching between parties but they're never not voting as a tribe for a party that represents them as a tribe and understands that and understand and thinks that way oh okay, great so Juan I think you were next and then Alice Well, thank you very much for being here with us today. And it's been fascinating to hear everything you've said so far. So um, first, before asking the question that is very brief, I would just like to say from my experience when I lived in Israel, I would define it as a miraculous balagan with everything going on, honestly. And the question is just basically, how can you explain the Bibi phenomenon with such a fragmented society? Explain the question. Basically, how do you explain 12 years of uninterrupted power? When, uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah um, why does he succeed? Um, so uh, the short answer is he's better at navigating the, the, those tribes. Uh, the slightly longer answer th- than his you know, competitors. The slightly longer answer is different tribes have different political cultures. And that's one of the things that makes this all very complicated. Um, The Likud party, ladies and gentlemen, um, has had four leaders since the founding of Israel 72 years ago, three years ago, 73 almost years ago. The Likud party has had exactly four leaders, Menachem Begin, Ariel Sharon, uh, Yitzhak Shamir, and Benjamin Netanyahu. There is a tremendous culture in the Likud tribe of, um, of loyalty, of just political loyalty, not just because... They tend to be more Arab in mindset. This is something that Ashkenazim think. And they're ridiculously loyal because they're sheep. And uh, Netanyahu spins them around his finger, the millionaire Ashkenazi leader of a, of a vast, you know, horde of unwashed, uh, you know, brown people, which is how some on the left talk about them. But in fact, because it's a tremendous advantage in our system. We have a poll now uh, I think it came out yesterday, uh, by uh, Channel 12, which is the largest commercial news operation in Israel. And they have a poll that asked people outright, do, not, not what party are you voting for? It also asked that, but it then just asked all the people it was, it was polling, do you want Netanyahu to stay in office or do you want Netanyahu to leave? About 35% want him to stay, 51% want him to leave. An outright majority of the country wants him to leave. 36%, slightly more than a third, wants him to stay. There's just one problem. In that 51 who want him to leave, there isn't any kind of unity. There's the right-wingers of Yamina and Tikva uh, Chadasha and Sal. There's the, the, the Arab parties. There's the left-wingers of Meretz and Labour. There's the in-between of Gantz and, and Lapid. There's all these different people who themselves can't organize and sit together. And the 36% who want him to stay march in lockstep and absolute loyalty to each other and to him, but also to each other. And that's really, really important to understand that Likud has a culture that has served them really, really powerfully and well of tremendous loyalty uh, to the party leader. Um, and to the extent, to the extent we had a fascinating real world exercise experiment with Likud political identity 
2006. What happened in 2006? Ariel Sharon, head of the Likud party in August of 2005, carries out a very, very controversial move on the Israeli right. He pulls Israel out of Gaza. He pulls down all the settlements. He pulls out to the last inch. He closes the gate of the border fence in August of 2005. And then uh, in, in, I think it's by November, I think he, he leaves Likud because Netanyahu is mounting a rebellion against him over the anger at the disengagement. Uh, Sharon leaves Likud, forms the Kadima party, um, and is polling, as the Kadima party, is polling at just astronomically high, 40 seats. And then Sharon in December of 2005 has a stroke. A man named Ehud Olmert, one of the least popular politicians in the history of Israel, becomes the head of Kadima, former Likud minister, he ran in primaries in Likud for party leader. He never got more than 2% of the vote in the Likud primaries, ever. And Olmert, but Sharon made him his deputy in Kadima because he was unpopular, so he couldn't threaten Sharon. Sharon has this stroke. He's incapacitated. Olmert becomes party leader. Olmert runs only on the strength of Ariel Sharon wanted this, Ariel Sharon wanted that. Ariel Sharon's face is more visible in the Kadima campaign in early 2006, in the 2006 election, than the man actually running for prime minister at the head of the party, Eudolmer. And he runs explicitly on a withdrawal from the West Bank. Two weeks before the election in 2006, he says, I'm going to pull out of the West Bank. Ariel Sharon wanted to pull out of the West Bank. I'm going to do it. We're going to pull out to the lines we want. We can't wait for the Palestinians. We just saw the terrorism of the Second Intifada as a response to the peace process, blah, blah, blah. If you don't want me to pull out of the West Bank, don't vote for me. Israelis elected Olmert by a huge margin prime minister. And who elected him prime minister? Likud. The Likud party, after Sharon left, was now led by Netanyahu in the 2006 elections, folks. Look it up. Dropped down to 12 seats. How much does Likud's political culture support the party leader? At its most controversial, in a withdrawal from the West Bank election, Two-thirds of Likud went with the leader. Even after the leader's gone, his anointed replacement, they're still there. Likud have a tremendous loyalty to the leader. And that served them well. And that's the secret of Netanyahu's success, I think. There's a lot of little, here he maneuvered that way, there he maneuvered that way. The basic fact that he doesn't drop below 30 seats, no matter what happens with the pandemic, before, the, before the, the, the vaccinations showed up, when we had thousands of dead and we had we, we, we were a government that couldn't enforce social distancing rules, we had just catastrophic uh, 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 policies and, 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 and failures of the government. And Netanyahu wouldn't pass a budget so that he wouldn't have to let Gantz ever be prime minister like he promised. So we've actually not had a state budget for two years, which means major government programs and projects are frozen. The school year started without the youth at risk programs active because there was literally no money for them. Netanyahu has really mistreated Israel over the last year and his vote, his, his polling never dropped below about 27 seats. And that loyalty uh, when no one else has that loyalty, uh, we'll, we'll keep you prime minister in our system. Thank you. Alyssa, your question was next, huh? Yeah. Um, hi, so it's, uh, thank you for coming today. It's been really interesting to listen to you. Um, my question is slightly off topic, but um, you mentioned many times that, you know, 
Israeli democracy survives because of the kind of tribal undertones. Um, I was just wondering, do you think that part of, definitely not the whole reason, but part of the reason why U.S. intervention in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict doesn't work is because the U.S. just doesn't really understand or embody the same kind of tribal mentality that, you know, Israelis and Palestinians do? Um, I do think it's America's fault that America is so bad at intervening in the Middle East. Um, I don't want to be flippant about the reason. Sometimes people, pundits like myself, they have one idea and they find, you know, what's the old expression? If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, I think Americans don't understand that in their political culture are, are bad at recognizing the difference between what they what they believe should be true because they have a profoundly moral narrative of themselves and their history and their effect in the world and what is actually happening out there in the world of real three-dimensional human beings that aren't the moral cartoons running in the heads of Americans. Um, I'll give you an example with Palestinians, which is just glaring and obvious and painful to watch. Um, Barack Obama is president, uh, he's brand new, 2009-2010, and he comes to uh, the Israelis and he says uh, says to Netanyahu, um, you have to give the Palestinians to bring them to the negotiating table, you have to give them a settlement freeze. You have, to, you have to come toward them. You have to say, hey, I'm going to freeze all building in the settlements as a trust building measure to show you that I'm serious about peace talks. And then you'll come to the table and we'll negotiate peace. And this was something that the Americans did very badly uh, because Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, actually announced that there would be two, two parts to the trust building measures that would launch the Obama peace process. One is that the Arab world would grant Israel normalization and recognition and Israel would freeze settlements. And then Israel would get something and and, and the Palestinians would get something. And the Obama administration would achieve these concessions from both sides before anyone sat down to the negotiating table through sheer pressure. They would just literally say, I'm America. I'm the 800 pound gorilla. You're going to give me this and you're not going to complain about it. And Hillary Clinton went to Qatar and, and, and Bahrain and, and the United Arab Emirates and the Saudis. And they said to her, we really appreciate you. You're a wonderful person. Uh, absolutely not. What do you think this is? Uh, where did you people learn about the Middle East? And uh, then she came to Israel. And even though the Arabs, pub- they announced what they were going to demand before making sure they could get it. And so when the Arabs said no, the Arabs said no publicly to something the Obama administration demanded publicly. And so then it comes to Israel and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama uh, then tell the Israelis, uh, you, they said, no, you don't get to say no. So you're giving us the settlement freeze. And I'd hate to see what happens if you don't. And so they squeeze Netanyahu and it's all public. It's all public. And Netanyahu, what does he do in 2010? For 10 months, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Likud prime minister, for the first time in the history of Israel, imposes a settlement freeze on on the settlements in the West Bank, everywhere outside of Jerusalem. He didn't want to set the precedent of of acknowledging Jerusalem isn't Israeli. And so he imposes this settlement freeze. And that's when the Obama administration discover how stupid they've been. Because Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, who's still Palestine's president in the 
15th year, I think, of a four-year term. Um, he doesn't like elections. He's now calling new ones. It's still not clear how it's going to happen or if or where the Hamas is going to run or to what extent. Um, Mahmoud Abbas says to... to uh, Mahmoud Abbas won't come to the table. The Obama administration has expended tremendous political capital, fought with the Jews, fought with Congress, fought with APAC, squeezed Netanyahu dry, pulled out of a Likud prime minister a 10-month settlement freeze as a a precursor, trust-building precursor for negotiations that then became the Palestinians' demand for negotiate, demand uh, as a, a precondition for negotiations, right? It was supposed to be just a, a sort of trust-building measure that then became the Palestinians. They pocketed it and then asked for more things. But that's not what's fascinating. What's fascinating is Abbas couldn't come to the negotiating table for the entire 10 months. He just couldn't do it. Why couldn't Abbas come to negotiate when he had already pocketed from Obama a settlement freeze that had never happened before? Well, if you know anything about the Palestinians, the answer is obvious. Barack Obama talked all the time about how pro-Israel he is. He's a Zionist president. He loves AIPAC. He loves Israel. No one has done more for Israel's security than Obama. The Zionist White House, Palestinian newspapers wrote about Abbas, had just demanded and just gotten out of Benjamin Netanyahu a bigger concession for Palestine than the Palestinian leadership had ever even demanded. No Palestinian leader had ever said, unless there's a settlement freeze, I'm not coming to the negotiating table. Why is the Zionist president of America, the great Satan, demanding more for us than you, Mr. Abbas? There were protests in the street. And Abbas had to invent new demands that were more pro-Palestinian than Obama. Because he couldn't be less pro-Palestinian than the Zionist in the White House. In other words, Obama tried to tried to side with the Palestinians and ended up pushing Abbas up a tree because he just had no idea how any of this works among the Palestinians and among the Israelis. And so he pushed Abbas up that tree. It took him four years to be able to come down until the talks in 2014. And the talks in 2014 never really got to the substance because they were always about the preconditions. The Obama administration, in its attempt to make everybody understand that it really meant peace, uh, ended up creating preconditions that never existed before and making it much harder to pursue peace. That's about how America did everything everywhere in the Middle East. Um, it's just a, a there's so there's there's it's unbelievable. It's actually kind of fascinating, and I. I haven't read enough about American sort of serious thinking and self-critique about how they think about foreign policy. But the vast majority of people in the United States who talk about Israel aren't talking about real Israel. They're talking about this cartoon, moral cartoon inside themselves that causes them a lot of anxiety. They love Israel. They're very worried about Israel. They hate Israel. They, they feel strong things about Israel. But it's not actual real Israel. It's their Israel. It's the Israel in their heads. There's a, there's a, and, and when the people I'm talking about aren't ordinary people in America. They're the foreign policy establishment. I'm talking about the State Department when I say these things. So there's this disconnect. There's this sort of internal chatter about themselves, which is very, very moralistic and very, very little strategy and very, very little analysis and very, very little care and thought. Um, Donald Trump didn't think through his policies very well. Um, and in some arenas of policy, Donald Trump did better not just that Obama, then Obama and Clinton and Bush, and he just did better because he, he just didn't go to that establishment 
that 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 constantly talks to itself and never really checks its its facts and its information against the reality in the region. That was a long answer, but I needed an example because I didn't just want to say Americans are all you know hot air. Uh, there's a real cultural problem in American foreign policy uh, now when Biden is dealing with Putin or when they're dealing with the Chinese, or I don't know that they're dealing with hard strategy and hard reality. Uh, they might be talking about their own sort of moral, you know, moral internal, internal narratives. Uh, Americans have that problem. Maybe that's why America free, freed half the world. Maybe that's why America, the parts of the world that America conquers tend to turn into democracies, right? What's the difference between North Korea and South Korea? There's no cultural difference. There's no religious difference. There's no difference in history. The difference begins at the American line. You know, one, one half was controlled by China. The other half was controlled by America, democratized under America. You know, West Germany and East Germany to this day, you see the difference between being conquered by the Americans and being conquered by the Soviets. Maybe Americans being all worked up about their morality is a good thing ultimately in history, uh, but it, it's often something they trip over. Don't worry, America's also becoming tribal and no longer ideological. Baruch Hashem, that means they're going to be more and more democratic based on the Israeli model. If I'm going to do what the Americans do to us, which is whatever we are, you must become, then America's going in a good direction. They should have more fights and more storming of capitals and get more tribal and everything will work out because that's how Israel works. That was a joke. America shouldn't, shouldn't have that happen to it. I like your pivot towards like explaining the goodness of America too, but I actually it really resonated with me. Oh. I think America is a profound good. I have this big fight I have with the law professors, and of course they know more than me. So. I like your fights on Twitter on this one. Oh, I don't think there's such a thing as international humanitarian law. The international laws of war, I don't think they exist. There are these treaties, states sign them. Everybody says you have to obey this laws of moral war. You can't bomb this and you can't do that. And you can't use that weapon and you can't do this in war. I don't think any of that's real. No state has ever felt itself limited by these things if it actually had to fight an actual war. All of international law and international stability and all of international peace, the fact that everyone can send shipping everywhere in the world today without feeling any danger, the fact that the world's seaways and airways and postal services are all interconnected and free is a function of American power. America put, Bretton Woods established the, the, the banking system of the world. Look up Bretton Woods in, in, in Wikipedia. Um, uh, the American Navy is larger than the next 10 navies combined. It sails all the world's sea lanes. It's the reason you get your Amazon shipments from anywhere in the world without a pirate stealing it along the way, which is what happened before America's Navy took control of the world's seas. I, I happen to think America is a force for tremendous good, and maybe because Americans are so, you know, there's something complicated there. It's not just that Americans are, are stupid in the Middle East. What makes them stupid in the Middle East might be what made the whole world free and happy and prosperous over the last 70 years. I genuinely think there's that complexity, but they should get smarter about the Middle East. Nice. <clears throat> All right, who else has a question? Tomas, you're so polite, raising your little Zoom hand. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt anyone else, but like, <laughs> if anyone has a question before me, like I've already asked a question, so they can go first, but if not. Did you just hear there's no rules, it's just power? So you have power. It's only power. Yeah. Okay, great. 
then I have another question, which is about how to get out of the current political, how do you call it? Like, um, it seems like there's no way out of this political crisis that's been going on for the past two years in Israel. And it's in part because of Bibi Netanyahu, in part because of everyone who's against Bibi Netanyahu and how everyone kind of sees it as Rak Bibi or Lo Bibi Bichlal. Um, but like, how do you get out of this? Is there like a system reform that has gone, like an institutional reform, although it's impossible to like make it right now because of the current like situation or is it always going to be like this? Do you think there's a way out? And in your opinion, personally, what is the way out? Is there like a change that has to go in mentalities or I'll let you tell us. Um, well, Netanyahu could win. That's a quick way out, um, outright win, you know, 63 seats, whatever. Um, I think that he, in order to win, he needs to give Bennett a very great deal that will make his government very difficult to manage. But um, it would be an end to elections. I think that once he does that, it probably will give him some stability um, while elevating Bennett. That's certainly what Bennett's trying to accomplish. And why Netanyahu is running an insane campaign now against Bennett, arguing that he's left wing. And There is a debate today. Uh, right, o'clock. at 10 o'clock. Is that yeah. actually happening? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, apparently it's uh, Bennett and Netanyahu, but not at the same times. Oh, and, really? Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone I really told... looked forward. forward. It's, it's still in development, but I'm not sure if anyone explained to Bennett that what, what, what is actually on the books at the moment, and maybe they'll change it, is, is not concurrently. But I... it's, all, it's all moving. It's By the way, it's at 10 o'clock at night on Channel 20, the pro-Netanyahu channel. <laughs> I, you know, I... If I was Bennett, I'm not no sure I would, I would be so excited. But Bennett's in a little bit of a complicated place now because uh, Netanyahu really has uh, turned the entire Likud campaign apparatus. Um, all of the activists on the on the street, you know, all of the the, the digital, all of the everything. It does that every time. On, the last on two days is just to drink Bennett's votes. Um, more, yeah, even more so now. I mean, really yeah, just yeah. frenetic. I can tell. Uh, like when, Netanyahu yeah. went to Bennett's house to yeah, demand but, from but him. But he didn't got yeah. And then he never showed up. Out. Yeah. Right. He never actually showed up because Bennett put out a video that said, I'm not going to sign a loyalty pledge. I don't work for you. I work for the people of Israel. And then Netanyahu realized he uh, it was a misstep. It was, he, he, he embarrassed himself. Anyway, for, for those <laughs> of you not closely following the campaign, Um, a Netanyahu victory would get us out of all of this. Um, and the other thing that would get us out of all of this is Netanyahu leaving. Um, by the way, I don't know if it would get us, it might get us out of it for a single uh, election uh, in the sense that uh, the Gidon Sa'ar and Aftali Bennett sort of anti-Netanyahu right would fold back into the right very, very comfortably with Netanyahu gone until the Likud picks another great leader for the next 30 years. And then that'll be, that'll have a right-wing resistance against them. And they'll say, oh, now you have a new Netanyahu. You think you're the new Netanyahu? You're not the new Netanyahu. And then they'll establish a second. Do you think there will be new Netanyahu? There's never not been a Netanyahu. Begin managed to lose every election in 29 years, and nobody in Likud uh, challenged him for the prime ministership, for the party leadership. Uh, Likud only, only elects these long-term leaders. It might change. Everything changes. But so far, Likud hasn't changed. Um, so, so yeah, uh, those are the answers. I just, 
it's really important to notice, to really note, and to really acknowledge that um, this is there's no political trick that's that's put us in this deadlock. This deadlock has held when uh, one kind of party was running against Netanyahu, and when a completely different reorganization of of, of a, a third of parliament found itself running against Netanyahu with parties that disappeared, with parties that came, that were that were born new, right? Sars party is brand new. There were about four brand new parties, all of which have collapsed. The Israelis, Elon Khubayi, and, uh, and uh, Shelach's party and various parties, they've all collapsed. But suddenly we have this new whole party that has not collapsed. It's actually flourishing, or it was flourishing until polls this week, but maybe it'll still flourish. Um, the parties change, but the fundamental deadlock is not the political parties and not the political system and not the electoral system. The fundamental deadlock is Israelis themselves. The tribes are divided on this leader. And the, 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 the supporters of this leader who has accomplished tremendous accomplishments for Israel, the vaccination drive is astonishing. Um, he has done really important things in his, in his terms as leader of Israel. And also done tremendously difficult and painful things that I've heard a lot of people as leader of Israel. And so he's earned the hatred. He's earned the love. And there's this divide. And the divide is real. And the divide maintains itself even when political parties change their names and collapse and are reborn and are completely different uh, constellations and alliances and unions and across several different elections. So it's uh, the problem isn't the parties. The problem is the people. The people of Israel are actually that divided on this question. And you can't uh, replace the people, unfortunately. That's that's the joke of every politician. You can't replace the people, unfortunately. Can I make a comment and a question? Sure. My comment is your theory of how Israeli democracy stabilizes is a perfect metaphor in a Simpsons episode where a doctor explains to Mr. Burns that he has every single disease that's ever been known to man and a few that are new. And they've all balanced each other out so perfectly that he's he forever. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, uh, I remember that episode. Yeah. It's a classic. So, yeah. uh, uh, but my question is this, how bad is it if we're stuck in this deadlock? Because honestly, it doesn't look like we're, you're, you're, you know, it, it doesn't look right now like he's going to. He could win. Um, let's, say he does, other... let's say he gets 58. But even if, if he wins, it will be like the next election, like in two or right. three or. Someday. The deadlock will be back in three years. Yeah. Um, as long as he's here. Right. I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, in theory, having our politicians suffer terribly um, from not being able to win outright is the Israeli democratic system. Uh, no politician ever wins outright. Everybody always needs people from across the aisle to pass a budget or to pass a law. And everybody's always toppling everybody else. We uh, have... We now have our 35th government in 72 years. So our governments are elected to four-year terms. They last about two years uh, on average over the course of Israel's lifetime. Um, and, um, and so that's important to say. In other words, um, I'm not bothered by the fact that our politicians have bad, a bad time of it, right? That's a good thing in a democracy. Uh, the problem is that they can't pass a budget because no majorities can form in the Knesset, no budget law can pass. And there are vast, we haven't had a, um, a budget law passed since 2018. And there are enormous things, reforms and fundamental changes to our economy and major infrastructure projects that are just literally sitting, gathering dust. Um, there's a fast train to a lot. 
Um, if anybody here has been to Eilat, Eilat is a Likud working class town. It is a Mizrahi town. It is a fairly poor town outside of the hotel district. And it is a town that really needs industry and really needs tourists from inside Israel, especially in a year when you can't get tourists from outside Israel. And there's a fast train being built to Eilat, except that its, it's funding dried up over the last two years because there's no new budget law passed by the government because of the, de the deadlock between Netanyahu and Gantz. And so that train literally just isn't moving. It's not being built, two years of not being built. How many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of economic damage to Eilat, Likud's base, uh, has that fact caused? Well, Netanyahu is the reason. Netanyahu's personal political needs are the reason that budget hasn't passed and that train isn't moving. Uh, that train is one small example of a hundred examples of terrible, terrible things that are that, are, that, that it's costing Israelis that these budget laws aren't passing. Every single government expenditure is passing in these ridiculous uh, stopgap spending bills just to make sure the schools can open, right? It's been a coronavirus year. It's been a crazy year. And Netanyahu has told Israelis all of the complicated craziness is because we have this weird unity government with Gantz. It's all his fault. And also it's the coronavirus fault, right? The fact that we've been staggering in and out of these things. No government has done really well, right? Now, that's that's not true. The governments of New Zealand and Estonia and, and Taiwan and Vietnam and South Korea have actually done, and Australia have done extraordinarily well. There have been uh, dictatorships that did well uh, in keeping the coronavirus down. There have been democracies that did well. There have been very large economies and very small economies that did well. Um, it, it, I don't think it's forgivable that we did so poorly uh, but then Netanyahu said, look, uh, maybe I didn't do the best over in those things, but look how well I did the vaccinations. No one else on earth could match me, right? He's got a point. So it, it's this mixed bag. Um, I think in the end, over the long term, we will start to really feel and really suffer. Um, our economy, our infrastructure will start deteriorating uh, if this thing lasts five years. Now, it's already lasted two, three years. So five years is not a crazy, right? If we, if this election isn't decisive, or if it forms a government, Netanyahu has 61, forms a government, and then it collapses in eight months because every single MK in a 61-seat coalition can extort the prime minister on every vote, right? Um, then we're back to this whole deadlock, right? So this could very easily last a very long time. And in the meantime, we have no state budget and the state um, can't run properly. So uh, that, that to me is the big problem. As, as a policy nerd. I have a question. Yeah, let me just say, Benji, it's the last question because I also have a major article to turn in tonight. About, That's uh, good, and look forward to reading it. How you calculate coalitions and what Israeli voters vote on. Touches on some of the things we talked about today. Yes. Fair, please. Um, I just wanted to ask, what do you think happened to the Israeli left? Because it, besides the fact that he changed in, like, parties wise um the people are not that lefty than they used to be and the um like labor and merit are changing and like weeks so what do you think yeah. happened to the people not to the parties the parties are changing uh it really depends on what you call the left um if the left is uh very modern secularist oriented although generally very traditional Uh, secular Israelis have the highest birth rate of any developed people in, in, the, de in the developed world, right? So uh, secular Israeli high-tech people 
are very conservative in their sort of family values and, and, and in their Shabbat observance and things like that. But they count as secular in the Israeli sort of tribal context and how we define Yeah, I feel Israel. like I'm talking more about the Palestinian exactly. situation. Yeah. In the Palestinian situation, the left is disappearing. I think there are two stages to this question. There used to be a very clear Israeli left and what it believed in was socialism. And it believed in socialism profoundly as the organizing principle of Zionism, of the state of Israel, of Jewish history, of modernity, of nationalism. Nationalism must be socialist, not social nationalism, which is Nazis, of course, but actual socialism and actual liberal nationalism have to be the right way to do nationalism. Essentially, the uh, Israeli you know, welfare state and healthcare system. The Americans are not a good example of what a healthy, happy society should look like. Um, they would have said, they, they did say openly and constantly, David Ben-Gurion um, spoke about his surprise that the Americans um, did so well by the 60s and the Soviets were doing so poorly. He thought it would be the other way around. Um, so socialism was the civic religion, was what the left meant. Socialism by the 80s doesn't make any sense. The, the divide between the Soviet camp and the, and the American camp in the world, between the productivity, between the uh, innovation, between the, the power, between the democracy, between the happiness of people living in the socialist world versus people living in the capitalist world was so unbelievably huge that there was, it wasn't a conversation anymore. And so it was hard to have socialism be your religion. And that's when peace came along. The left became profoundly enamored with this peace idea with the Palestinians, much more than a strategic question or a policy question. Or now we ask, look, uh, we don't like the Palestinians. They don't like us. But if we don't separate, we're going to have to make them all Israeli. So let's separate, right? That kind of very dry, very important, but very dry sort of strategic question. What do we need to happen in the end? Even the moral question. They don't have civil rights. They have to have civil rights. They can't not have civil rights. So they have to have civil rights, end of story, either in their own state or in our state, right? Those are very concrete and reasonable ways to talk about the Palestinian question. But the way the left in the 90s talked about it was in these unbelievably religious redemptive terms and Shimon Peres' New Middle East. And this was the beginning of the coming of the Messianic age of plenty and joy and happiness and trains that would go from Tehran all the way to, uh, to Haifa and all of this. Um, it became the civic religion of the left. And when it collapsed, it replaced socialism. That was, the, that was its power. That was why it was so important to the left. That was why the left hated the right so much because it, it really functioned like a religion. And then when, the, when it collapsed, when the Oslo process collapsed in terrible bloodshed, 140 suicide bombings in Israel's cities, imagine in your country, 140 suicide bombings on any issue, with any group, I don't, yeah, immigration or anything. Imagine if uh, in Germany today, which is 10 times Israel's population, if the Muslim immigration to Germany produced 140 suicide bombings in the next three years, what would Germany's politics look like? It would be a war. There wouldn't be any more immigration to Germany and there would start to be some emigration, right? So that, that happened to a country a tenth the size and it was something everyone experienced and it shattered the Israeli left. By the way, it didn't just shatter the Israeli left. It changed how Israelis think about voting. We, until 1999, Israelis never 
had a vo uh, voter turnout below 78%, I think, something like that. 77% maybe was the lowest. Incredibly high at 80% was an average Israeli election. I don't know, uh, in your countries, guys, 80% turnout is astonishingly high. Israelis turned up at 80% rates across all elections during economic crises, during wartime, it didn't matter. Governments fell, governments rose, right-wing won, left-wing won. Israelis had tremendous, tremendous turnout. 1999 was the last election we had that turnout. The second intifada comes, we have the 2001 election, turnout drops to 62%. We lost something like 16% of the electorate overnight from the second intifada. That's, that's the left that literally didn't know why it should vote anymore. And we still haven't recovered. We're still at 71 at our best of times. You know, we still haven't recovered to the lowest it was before the Second Intifada. It was a shattering fracture line in the history of the Israeli uh, left and, and of the Israeli story more generally, and how Israelis think about politics as, as being able to solve their problems. The Israeli left doesn't think politics can solve its problems anymore in, in a very important and profound way. So what is the Israeli left? I would argue those people went nowhere. They're still here, they're still voting. Uh, they vote for Yeshatid. What does Yeshatid think about the Palestinians? He really wants separation. It's super hard to separate when if I pull out of the West Bank, Hamas takes over. So... But everyone is pretty much about separation, just how to separate. And a majority wants separation. Yeah. yeah. Not everyone. Even, to each no, no, but even, even the right wing say separation, but with like... Few right. How big should the but, Palestinian state be? Yeah. Is the real debate. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. How much of a state do we call yeah, it? No a state? one thinks that we can like just leave it right. how how it is right now. Yeah. So the left no longer has anything to say. Is my point, and it doesn't have anything to say because it's great, vast, almost re civic religion scale messages have collapsed and collapsed spectacularly, and the left. It's civic religion collapsed after it tried to do huge and powerful and profound and amazing things. Many, many of the things it tried to do, uh, it succeeded in and helped build the Israel we have today that is so astonishingly successful. Uh, but its ideas have all collapsed and it hasn't yet found another idea. And so now it's a secularist tribe among the 15 tribes. Uh, and that's worth about 25 seats. And so the Israeli left is 25 seats. And there's something called the Israeli center which is all the rest of the Israeli left that just doesn't use the word anymore because it doesn't know what it means. That's what I think happened to the Israeli left. Yeah, makes sense. I like that as a last sentence. Some of my best friends are on the Israeli left. I just want to clarify. Um, thank you so much for having me. I, I just want to say one thing, which I thought was really fascinating, a whole talk on Israeli politics and the election and the fact that the prime minister is currently in a trial for three corruption cases didn't come up once. I'm going to disappoint you. I don't like that trial. I think Netanyahu's case is very strong. And I also, much more importantly, um, so in other words, it's a subject of its own for me. It's not quite correct. And more importantly, uh, the trial has been announced, investigated, actually started, actually happening for five years now. So whatever effect it has on politics, it's already long, long been baked in uh, to the system. Just the fact that it's been going on for so long has kind of neutralized it as a subject. 
If you like Netanyahu, you don't believe the trial is serious. And if you don't like Netanyahu, you believe it's very, very important. And if he's exonerated, you'll be absolutely sure the judges were wrong. Uh, but it, it has nothing to do with the actual evidence on the trial. And I, of course, am a completely objective journalist who neither likes nor dislikes anything. But, um, but uh, separately from my views on Netanyahu, which are that he has had many, many terrible mistakes and also some spectacular successes, uh, I think there's a real problem with his trial and our legal system, I think maybe might have flubbed uh, uh, this one. So now we talked about the trial. No, it's just, no, I just think it shows the thesis of the, the power of the, the tribes. Right. And our democracy, in a way, you know, it, it, it's just over, uh, that's the word I'm looking for here, you know, it shows more importance than this trial, where in another democracy, the, 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 like in America, for example, it would be the heart and center of the democratic process and elections in a way are here maybe wouldn't, I don't know. Or maybe America, t- America 10 years ago, arguably America today is uh, pretty immune to uh, shenanigans by uh, Donald Trump. Two impeachments like him. matter. If right. you like him, that's not going to change your mind. And if you dislike him, exoneration isn't going to change your mind. So it's a good point. But there yeah. was um, a crazy amount of protests about the trials. And like, if you, if you just drive the, the roads in Israel, you see like a um, million submarines with the name, uh, like the case, the name of the case. We, we sent reporters. Like demonstrations to the of submarines. We sent reporters to the protests. And one of the instructions we gave those reporters was find us right-wingers. We want to find right-wingers protesting a corrupt prime minister being prime minister. I would go if it won't and be so there, like lefty. There were so many. Yeah. And even now when there are, it's because of the new Benetzal political frameworks. Yeah, I'm telling you, I would go if it won't be so lefty. Right, but it's ultimately lefty. It's ultimately a particular tribe. And, and it's not really about... And by the way, they, they do feel that it's about um, the corruption of the prime minister. They, you, they don't know it's about the tribe. And the right is absolutely convinced that it's absolutely right, and the left is mentally ill. Everybody's absolutely sure they're, they're, they're right. And there's a lot of you know, science about tremendous research about how socialization mechanisms in the human brain have created that kind of system. And we uh, actually maybe develop language not in order to communicate where is going behind the trees, but actually in a profoundly socialized uh, animal, we're one of the most socialized animals that aren't insects. We are able to sacrifice ourselves for other animals outside of a biological relationship, uh, which is not something that lions or elephants do. Um, and uh, we're the only mammals that do that. Um, and so there's this tremendous socialization and language developed in order to facilitate that socialization. In other words, the reason I can speak is so that I can convince you guys of my social value in this deeply socialized situation in which we're all completely dependent on each other as a tribe crossing the savannah. And so political parties that is their inherent that is their fundamental neurological structure they are people self-validating each other against the other tribe and that is a that that is a structure in our brains that's two million years old so that there's that's not a little bit of science that's a tremendous amount of evolutionary psychology and even neurological science and all of this um and so they believe what they say and to outsiders we can look at it and we can say whoa that's awfully tribal 
because they aren't so concerned about potential corruption elsewhere. They aren't so concerned that some of the things that Netanyahu is accused of have never been prosecuted, uh, have never seen a politician prosecuted for them, for example, relationships with journalists anywhere in any democracy. And there's no explicit law forbidding it, but Netanyahu is on trial for it. Um, they're not concerned with a serious debate about the substance of the charges. Um, it's not about that. And, and that's okay. All, you know, people sometimes ask me, people often ask me, people today have asked me several times who I vote for. Um, and my simple answer is, um, first of all, I'm not gonna tell them because as soon as I tell you a name of who I vote for, um, nothing I ever say will ever sound the same. You won't, you're physically, neurologically incapable of ever hearing me outside of the statement of who I voted for. So it's, and, and even if you try to, you won't be able to. So I, I just don't say. But the other reason I don't say who I vote for um, is that it's the least interesting thing I have to tell you. It's like, I vote very boring. I vote very mainstream. I vote somewhere between Bennett and, uh, between Merritt's and Bennett. Uh, you know, that's, that's, I vote very normal. And, and, and I also vote kind of intuitively, kind of by my identity, kind of by whether I trust these people or not, like everybody else. Just the fact that I have a profession of constantly thinking about politics doesn't mean when I act politically, I'm, I'm anything other than an animal like humans have always been. So, um, so yeah, try. Thank you, Fabib. This was Thank you, guys. Thank you, as always. Good night. Good night. Good luck writing. Thank you. Thank you.